Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. All right, if you have a copy of God's Word, join me in Paul's letter to Galatians. Galatians. This is going to be our first message in the series, The Story That Occurs in the New Testament. And so if you're not quite sure where to find Galatians, just walk with me beginning at the first part of your, Bi- of your Bible's New Testament. It's divided up into old uh, in the front, new in the back. So go to the New Testament, you'll find the book of Matthew. From there, continue moving toward the back of the book, and you will find Mark, then Luke, then John. Acts, it comes next, the book of Acts. Then Paul's letter to the Romans. Then Paul has two letters to the Corinthians, first and second. And immediately after second Corinthians, you'll find Paul's letter to the Galatians. Uh, If you are just stepping in, you've caught us in the middle of a series called The Story. Our aim has been to, starting on January the 8th and then ending on June the 11th, to cover the broad storyline of the entire Bible. So we started in Genesis 1. We're going to finish up Revelation in June. So all of this in roughly about six months. Obviously, that means that we're uh, traveling at an incredibly high rate of speed. We're flying at a really high altitude. Uh, There are only a few places where we can kind of dip beneath the surface. But the aim in this is to give you an understanding of that broader storyline of Scripture so that you can better understand your Bible. So that moms, it's Mother's Day, right? When you sit down with your kids, dads, when you sit down with mom and with the kids and you open up the Bible, you'll have a better understanding of how to disciple your own family because you'll understand how whatever it is you're reading connects to that larger story. And so far, we have covered the following. We have uh, covered that God told us in the very beginning that he created us in his image and likeness. He created us to bring him glory and to fulfill the purpose for which we were put on this planet. We have also covered the, the part of the story where our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell in the garden. They openly rebelled against their God. The result of that is we are now separated from God and we live in a world that uh, full of people that are separated from their God. A world that is no longer in the garden that he created, but outside of it. And the result of that is famine and warfare and disease and all manner uh, of ugly and sinful things and suffering and things that we have to deal with. But we also learned very early in that story that God made a promise to our first parents. He said, I'm not going to leave it like this. In Genesis 3.15, he said, I'm going to initiate warfare between the seed of the serpent who has tempted you to fall and the seed of the woman. There's, there's going to come a, a person from the womb of a woman. One of the greatest Mother's Day's messages ever. There's going to be a mom and she's going to give birth and that child will grow up and be the Messiah and he will redeem you from your sins and your rebellion. And additionally... He will restore the cosmos back to the way that God intended. And the rest of the storyline of the Bible has been about God keeping that promise. So over the last roughly 15 weeks, we've told multiple stories. We've looked at multiple historical contexts. We've looked at multiple kings and prophets and biblical characters of every sort and kind. All of them tied in some way to that larger point, which is God sending a Messiah into the world to redeem everything back to himself. And today we finally get there all the way through the Old Testament, all the way up until what we covered last week. And and that, that terminated actually with 400 years of silence from heaven. God has not spoken 
in 400 years. All of that is about to change. And never has there been a higher point to a more consequential story than the one we're going to cover today. The life of that Messiah, the man Christ Jesus. So read with me beginning in chapter 4 of Galatians, beginning in verse 4. It says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's an intimate saying that essentially means daddy, daddy. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And Paul, again, says all of this is possible. All of this has taken place for one reason. God sent his son in the fullness of time. So we need to ask a question. What does it mean by the fullness of time? And furthermore, why wait all of these years? Why take your people through all of those historical circumstances that we've been looking at for roughly the last three and a half months? Why all of the kings? Why all of the prophets? Why allow all of the evil? God, why are you working through those things? Have you ever asked God a question like that? Why now? You ever had one of those situations where you're like, why is this happening now? As if there's not enough wrong in my life already. Or maybe it was even a positive thing that happened, but maybe you were a little too much like your pastor. And rather than thank him for the positive thing, you look to heaven and you go, you know, that could have happened 10 years ago. You could have done that five years ago. Sometimes it's as benign as looking toward heaven and saying, really? After five consecutive days of rain. How many of you have done that? Yeah, you've done that. Yeah. Is it a sin to complain? Yeah, it is. But, but that's, that's another sermon for another day. My point is, we've all been there, haven't we? Why wait? Why is it that Paul describes this particular time in history as the fullness of time? And some historical background is necessary to let you know what's going on. See, in first century Rome, the Jews, once again, are not sovereign over their own country. They, they are living in occupied territory, and nobody in Rome is thinking about a Messiah. If newspapers had existed in this day, the above-the-fold stories would have consisted of three things. Number one, the establishment of something and the development of something called the Roman road system. Essentially, this was the first ancient interstate highway system. It allowed people to very easily and without the threat of a lot of violence and attack get from one part of the Roman Empire to the other. So it provided for the rapid spread of goods and services and commodities and other things. The second thing we see is the Pax Romana. This was a statement delivered by Caesar Augustus that said, finally, we've reached a point where we've brought the empire together with all its various peoples and languages and cultures, and there is now a relative stability and peace. For the first time in hundreds of years, there is peace, no longer warfare, at least not on any large scale anywhere on the planet, and the people who brought it were the Romans. And then the final thing is the emergence of a common language. Up until this point, there was one form of Greek, classical Greek, very high, very educated form of the Greek language. Another emergence of this language form known as koine, which is a word that simply means common. Anybody can speak this language. And Koine Greek now becomes the language of commerce, the language of the exchange of everything from commodities and goods and services to ideas. And so in the fullness of time, Paul speaks about a time in that phrase where you had the development of an interstate highway that would make the rapid spread of the gospel, just like the rapid spread of the, the trade of other goods and services, possible. The emergence of a common language in which that gospel could be 
communicated and ultimately written down. Your New Testament that you have in front of you was originally uh, written in the Greek language. And all of this happening during a, time of, during a time of relative peace and stability. This is the fullness of time that Paul is describing. The stage has been set. It's time for Messiah to come. And so with that in view, we have to ask some questions. Number one, where did Jesus come from? See, the life of Jesus is one thing. The fact that he entered history, the fact that he came into history through the womb of the Virgin Mary, all of those things are true. We're going to get to those things in a moment. But to really understand the origin of Jesus, you need to understand that God the Son had no beginning. John chapter 1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of faith and truth, full of grace and truth. Jesus would later on say to the religious leaders, this is his own words, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. If you, if you don't recognize those two words, you, you've probably never read the, the third chapter of Exodus. This is the first time we see this where Moses says to God, who am I going to tell Pharaoh has sent me? And God responds by saying, I am that I am. Thus you shall say to Pharaoh, I am has sent me. These are claims that Jesus makes of himself. He makes, he makes these claims of himself. Now today's Mother's Day. And so there's a great story in the Bible in Luke chapter 2 about Mary and Joseph losing their son. Nothing to encourage a mom like a story about losing one of your kids. You ever done that at the shopping center or something like that? And it's 15, 20 minutes goes by, but all these horrible things run through your mind about what could have happened to them. And then you discover that they haven't been kidnapped. Nothing horrible has happened. They're just hiding behind that dress in row three. And so you, you, your mentality shifts. You're no longer thinking about all the horrible things that could happen. You're now thinking about all the horrible things you're going to do uh, because you really are angry with your kid, right? And so, so Mary and Joseph lose their kid. So if you've ever lost a kid, just take comfort in the fact that these two young people lost God. Okay? Whatever your situation was, there's no way it's worse than that. No way. And they don't just lose him for a few minutes. They lose him for three days. They finally find him in the temple, and he is there conversing with the scholars and the scribes in the temple, and they are amazed at his wisdom. And there's a fable that's emerged over the years that, that just sort of speculates. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what kind of conversation they had, but, but this is a story that just kind of speculates on what they might have talked about. Maybe one of those elder men looks at him and they say, son, what is your name? And Jesus' answer is, well, on my mother's side, my name is Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus. But on my father's side, I am Emmanuel, God who is with you and has always been with you. Son, how old are you? Well, on my mother's side, I'm 12. But on my father's side, I have always been. Son, where you come from? Well, on my mother's side, I was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. But on my father's side, I am from a new Jerusalem that I am bringing here one day. See, when we talk about Jesus and his life and his ministry, we're not just talking about one Bible character among all other Bible characters. We're not talking about another hero in a long line of biblical characters. We are talking about at one and the same time the point of the story and the one who wrote the very history that he's entering into. Jesus the Messiah is God. He was in the beginning with God. 
That is the one who comes into human history. And he's born in, in, in a very real sense, except for one exception, just like you and me. So let's take a look at his birth. While the world is talking about this first ancient interstate highway system and the, the new growth of the Roman Republic, God sends an angel named Gabriel to a little podunk town called Nazareth. There would not have been more than 2,000 people living at this, in this town at the time. And he sends this angel to a young girl named Mary. Mary is, at this point in her life, no more than 14 or 15 years of age. So imagine that you're a 14-year-old girl, a 15-year-old girl, and an angel appears to you, and he says this, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor, that is grace, another word for grace, with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary, you have found favor. God's grace is allowing you to bring the Messiah, the descendant who will sit on David's throne forever. Centuries and centuries of history have passed. Mary is a young Jewish girl. She knows this story. She knows the promise has been made all the way back to our first parents. And now this angel says to her, you are going to be that individual. Your child, this descendant, will rule on the line of David. He will be the son of the Most High God. And Mary, you're going to be his mom. Happy Mother's Day. How intimidating is that? I mean, seriously, how intimidating is that? And Mary wonders how this is going to happen. How is this going to transpire? It's Mother's Day, and so one of the worst-kept secrets about moms that we all know and it's something that all of us, including moms themselves, would like to fix, but they often can't, is that they often pile a lot of guilt on themselves. You ever done that, mom? I mean, if you, a good mom does that. You just see that. She blames herself. Something goes wrong. A kid goes astray. A kid does something weird or dumb or whatever. A, a kid gets hurt really bad, and, and there's always that, what, what did I do? I, I should have done this. I should have done that. I shouldn't have let them go out. I, I should have made them do this. I, I should have said that. I mean, they just pile the guilt on themselves. And, 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 some, and most of the time, what they're putting on themselves really doesn't belong on them. It really doesn't. It's one of the more heartbreaking things to watch. And if you're married as I am to a mom, you've seen them do that kind of thing to themselves. And sometimes you just need to know. I was in the ER one time as a pastor with a mom. Son, teenage son was in there. They were working on him. She was pouring all that guilt on herself. What did I do? I should have done something different. And the truth of the matter is he was out in a parking lot surfing on the hood of a car. Okay. And every once in a while, a mom needs to hear dad or sometimes even your pastor come into the ER and go, Mom, you didn't do anything wrong and there's nothing you could have done different. Your teenage boy is a moron. Sometimes people are just stupid. Kids do foolish things, don't they? Kids do stupid things. Kids do rebellious things. And so often, if you don't hear anything else I say today, Mom, just hear this. Maybe it'll help set you free from some of this. Oftentimes, it's nothing you did or didn't do. You just got a dumb kid. Happy Mother's Day, right? And I don't mean that your kid is dumber than somebody else. I mean, we all got dumb. Every child, what is some comedian that used to say? Every kid before the age of 21 has brain damage of some sort, right? They all act like that. And sometimes they just do foolish things. Don't put that blame on yourself. But I have to tell you, there is one woman 
only one in the whole history of humanity for whom that was not true. And we're reading her story now. The angel Gabriel appears to her and says, you will give birth to the son of the most high God. Now here's Mary's bigger problem. She's a young 14, 15 year old girl. She's not married. She's never been with a man. And she says, how's this going to happen? And Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. Now, it's easy when you are 2,000 years removed from a narrative like this with its context of an honor-shame culture that still exists today uh, in many Middle Eastern cultures. Uh, You're removed from 2,000 years of this very myopic understanding that the Jews at this time had of what their Messiah would do and who he would be. It's easy to forget that both Mary and her son will spend the next three decades living with horrible reputations. Everyone will look down on them. Everyone will speculate as to what happened. Everyone will crack snide, snarky jokes. And she will hear those dark whispers for the next 30 years plus. Oh yeah, virgin, right. Like that could ever happen. We know that she and Joseph just got a little too anxious. Why don't they just go ahead and admit it? Or even in some of the darker moments, you know, I, I, think, I think something really dark must have happened. And that's why... That's why they're keeping this a secret. That's why she's, she's deluded herself into thinking she was a virgin. What probably happened was some Roman soldier took advantage of her. There were all kinds of things that spread about this woman and her son. She was the victim of a horrible reputation. And you need to be encouraged today to know that Jesus himself purposefully entered human history under what in the culture of his day people would have considered to be highly questionable circumstances. Whatever your reputation, whatever others have said about you as a result of things either in your control or even beyond your control, Jesus can identify with you. He's been there, and in the face of all of that suspicion and all of that disdain, the Bible tells us he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He grew up, and he grew up in perfection. This is what we know of his birth. Now, after this, he becomes a man, and we read about his baptism. In Matthew chapter 3, we see the account of John the baptizer, Jesus, burlap-wearing, bug-eating, stinky cousin. That's John. He's rough around the edges. He has a sharp message. He's as blunt as a two-by-four, and he calls people to repentance to the Lord their God. And he baptizes individuals who agree to turn from their sins. And so his baptism meant very similar. There's a few differences, but it was very similar to the baptism that you see here at Covenant when someone puts their faith in Christ. I am putting away my old life, turning away from it, and I'm going to turn to a new life. And John is there in the Jordan River baptizing people after having proclaimed the message of repentance, and he looks up and he sees his divine cousin coming down into the water. And he does what you and I probably would have done as well. Lord, why are you here? Is this a role reversal? Are you about to baptize me? Because that's what really should happen. And Jesus responds and says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. See, Jesus had no sin from which to repent. But in submitting to baptism, Jesus is doing two things. He's identifying with you and me, the very people that he has come to save, and he is secondly inaugurating a mission to actually get it done. 
This is his inauguration. This is when we hear the voice from heaven, when we see the Holy Spirit, when we see all three members of the Trinity working together. God the Father saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. God the Son having his ministry inaugurated. God the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descending down upon that meeting. And with that begins Jesus' mission. And here's the thing. The first place he goes is to a very, very dark place. Matthew 4, 1 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Not just oftentimes, most of the time, after you are commissioned on mission with God, the first places you go and the first experiences you have are not fun experiences. Most of the time, they're very, very dark. It was C.T. Studd who said, Most many people want to live within the sound of a chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of the gates of hell. And when he said that, he was really capturing a sense of what Jesus modeled for us here. He inaugurates his mission at baptism, and immediately he goes into the wilderness to face the same temptations that you and I face, and to face the same temptation that our father Adam faced. And it's a powerful, powerful story because we don't just see Jesus' victory over Satan. What we see in that victory is that he begins to undo the destruction that Satan, our enemy, had brought to this earth. Remember Adam's sin in the garden? First John tells us this, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And if you'll remember... Adam faced all of this in the garden. He faced the lust of the flesh because the the Genesis account tells us that he saw that and Eve saw it with him and that they were hungry. They saw this was good for food, this fruit that God had said, do not eat. They were also tempted by the lust of the eyes. It looked in appearance beautiful. It was something to be desired. And they were tempted with the pride of life because Satan had told them, if you partake of this, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And Adam in the garden fell for all three. But now Satan faces a different and much more powerful enemy. In the garden, Adam falls. Adam blows it. Adam is compromised, but it is in the wilderness of this area that Jesus achieves the ultimate victory that Adam lost. The second Adam comes into the wilderness and Satan tempts him as well with these same three things, with the lust of the flesh. He says, command these stones to become loaves of bread. You're hungry. You got to eat. You're God after all. Make this happen. And Jesus responds by saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Satan then tempts him again with the lust of the eyes. Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. In other words, he takes him up to the high pinnacle. He says, if you'll cast yourself off, the angels will catch you. And then, hey, nobody's going to question who you are anymore. What is that about? It's about appearance. You want to be, it's not about who I am. It's about what I want to look like. It's about my facade. It's about here's what you need to do so that you will look good in the eyes of others and you can stop all this nonsense and all this arguing with these religious leaders. And Jesus' response is again, it is written, You shall not put your Lord, your God, to the test. It's Jesus' way of saying to Satan, You're wanting to make this about me and how good I look. I know who I am. I don't have to look good. And I will not sin in an attempt to look good. And then finally, the pride of life. Satan takes him up on a high hill and shows him multiple kingdoms. And he says, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And this 
It's the climactic moment in the wilderness where Jesus says, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The first Adam compromised. He gave in. He was defeated in the garden. But this, this account in the wilderness, in the life of Jesus, reminds us that our enemy, Satan, now faces a new and undefeatable enemy. He overcame temptation of every sort. Whatever you're going through right now, whatever you're battling, if it's addiction, if it's porn, if it's anger, whatever's going on in your soul, and you're thinking, I'm never going to get victory over this, you serve a God who came to this earth and overcame everything on your behalf. And you can have victory through him. That's what we learn from this temptation into the desert. And then as he leaves the desert, he begins to preach. And he preaches about something very unique. From that time, Matthew 4, 17 tells us, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Leave John out of it and just read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And you will discover that this concept of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, as it's sometimes also described, occurs no less than 80 times just in the first three Gospels, you cannot come away from reading the Gospel accounts without coming to the conclusion that Jesus is obsessed with the kingdom of God. He speaks about it all the time. It is in you, it is among you, it surrounds you, and it is future. It is all of these things. And if you want to be a part of it, Jesus says, you have to follow me. Now the catch is, this kingdom doesn't look like people think it should. First century Palestine the Jews are under Roman occupation, and they don't want to be. And so when Jesus begins to identify himself as the one who has come in fulfillment of biblical prophecy, they begin to think, well, great, maybe he'll finally set us free. These godless Romans will be out, we'll be back in, we'll get the theocracy that we've been looking for all this time. And Jesus never brings it. In fact, he says just the opposite. My kingdom is not of this world. He doesn't bring it. This kingdom doesn't look like they think it should. And it certainly doesn't consist of the kind of men most would think fit to serve as the foundation of that kingdom. Jesus speaks about the kingdom in ways that people don't understand. And then he assembles a group of men around him that nobody thinks is fit to build a house, let alone a kingdom. It is amazing the people that he gathers and what he does with them and what they eventually become that surprises the world. I mean, imagine if Jesus had picked these men using the same criteria that we often use today to pick a leader. I mean, I want you to think about this for a minute. In fact, I have a, a, a mock letter here from Jordan Management Consultants writing to Jesus. And they're writing to him about the 12 disciples, and they've done basically an assessment of the disciples, and this is what they say. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience and managerial ability and proven capability. In other words, these are the wrong guys. You shouldn't have these guys. You should have different people on your team. And here's the reason why. The letter continues. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would lead to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty also to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical political leanings. 
and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. These are not people you should be calling as your disciples. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness. He meets people well. He has a keen business mind. He has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and your right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely, Jordan Management Consultants. Now, before we go too much off the deep end with an example like that, let, let's be clear. Peter did not end his life a hothead. Matthew did not end his life a tax cheat. James and John mellowed considerably. So the point of this is not that we would be careless about who leads around here. We set incredibly high standards for leadership here. And we're going to raise them as we continue to move forward together because God's church deserves stellar men and women to lead her. She is the bride of Christ. We lift that bar way up. We ain't dropping it, okay? So that, that's not really the point. The point is that God uses people who don't always start out incredibly well. He uses people. You understand, everybody, I, I, I had to tell somebody in the, in the church uh, a few weeks ago, they were kind of upset with their child's academic performance, and, and they were just shocked to learn that because, you know, my, my resume doesn't have any of this stuff on it when I came to be your pastor, but my SAT score, anybody want to guess what it was? It was an 870. Yeah, some of you are like, Ooh. I graduated from high school with a 1.9 GPA. The only reason I graduated high school was because I wore a football helmet and pads, and I wanted to keep playing, and I had to have my grade average up above a 2.0. You say, well, you graduated with a 1.9. Yeah, football season ended. I didn't care anymore. That's me. And my mother, bless her soul, will come up to our house now, and she will go into my study at the house, which is wall-to-wall -wall books everywhere, and she will go, who are you? And what happened to you? Okay? So, so the issue is not that we don't want people to improve and get better or that we don't set high standards. The issue is no matter what is in your past, God can use you. But remember the story of the patriarchs. God uses people powerfully only after he has broken them and wounded them deeply and changed them profoundly. And I've got some wounds that God himself inflicted on me because he loved me. And God will, through the person of Jesus, work on these hot-headed men, work on these immature men, and transform them into precisely the kind of men who will lay the foundation upon which you and I now stand and proclaim the gospel of Jesus. God can take you. It doesn't matter where you are. God can take you from there and take you where you're supposed to be. That's the point. That's the point. So if you're one of those people that nobody else would recommend, you're, you're precisely the kind of person that Jesus wants to encounter and change and grow and use for his glory. And it is amongst his ministry with these disciples that we see something else in the life of Jesus, and that's the miracles. Jesus turned water into wine. Jesus healed the sick. Jesus took blind people and caused them to see. He fed 5,000 people with one boy's lunch. He made the lame to walk. He called evil spirits out of people and sent them into pigs. Twice, he raised dead people and brought them back to life. 
And each and every time he did the impossible, it was not for the sideshow. It was not because he was trying to start some sort of traveling entertainment industry. It was not for the miracles themselves. It was to vindicate that he was exactly who he claimed to be. This is the conclusion that even the faithful Pharisees would come to. This is the words of Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Why is that? For no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. All of these miracles were not to point to the miracles, they were to point to Jesus. Even today, we get so myopically focused on the miraculous. And, ooh, that was great. I think I saw a picture of Jesus in a tomato when I sliced it open. Or somebody got healed. Some of you watch these cartoon characters on television who, for whatever reason, don't seem to have the gift of healing when they're in the hospital, but they can pack out a stadium and charge millions of dollars and do it there. That's kind of interesting to me. Because the focus is on the miracle. Jesus isn't doing miracles so that your focus will be on the miracle. Jesus performed miracles to bring the focus to Jesus. You don't come to Jesus to get healed, although certainly you can, and sometimes people have been, and I believe he still does. Amen? I do. I've seen it happen. So I'm not one of these guys that says, well, it's in Bible times. That doesn't happen anymore. I absolutely believe it happens. It just doesn't come through some of the gomers you watch on television. Right? God absolutely sometimes heals. God absolutely restores. God absolutely will do these things. But you don't come to Jesus to get those things. You come to Jesus to get Jesus. And all of these things are so that he could point back to himself. These are the miracles that he performs. So, What do the Gospels and the record of Jesus' life teach us about Jesus? That's where I want us to spend our last few minutes. And four things I want you to see. One from each of the Gospels as we have them. Number one, Jesus is the promised Messiah. That's what we learn more than any other lesson from the Gospel of Matthew. There's a teaching running around the evangelical church these days in the West. I'm not sure who originated, and I'm not sure who started it. I don't even know exactly what to call it. I just know that at the heart of it, I have heard guys on television and in books that I've read and in other places say, Jesus was not the Jewish Messiah, and he never claimed to be. And folks, that teaching doesn't even deserve to be called heresy. It's too stupid to be heresy, okay? Because whoever teaches it has never read the Gospel of Matthew, who explicitly says he's the Messiah. He writes as a Jew, to a Jewish audience. This gospel was written to his fellow Jews, and he wants to teach them Jesus is the Messiah that we're looking for. The whole of Matthew's message to his audience is, you guys stop looking in the windshield for some future Messiah. Look in the rear view. You missed him. He's back there. He starts with a genealogy in chapter 1 that traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to two very notable figures in Jewish history, Abraham and David. Because it was Abraham to whom God said, I'm going to bring a nation of people from your loins and that nation will produce an ultimate Israelite who will redeem the world and all of the world will be blessed and they will bless you because of it. Jesus comes from the line of Abraham. And then David, the great king, to whom God said, there will always be someone from your line occupying the throne of Israel. That king of Israel has now arrived and he will sit on that throne. He still sits on that throne. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. 
There are more extensive quotations from the Old Testament in Matthew than in all of the other Gospels combined. All of them interpreted by Matthew under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with abundant clarity for a Jewish community. This is your Messiah. 353 prophecies in the, New, in the Old Testament that deal with Messiah and our Lord Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. That is the message of Matthew. Jesus is your Messiah. Secondly, Mark tells us Jesus is our ultimate victor. See, Mark doesn't write to Jews. Mark writes to a predominantly Roman audience. Now, here's the thing about the Romans. And if you look at Mark, you'll see it's very kind of primitive. It's real short. Most scholars believe it was the first of the Gospels to be written. Uh, and it's just really kind of quick. All right? If you like a lot, of, a lot of rhetorical flourish, you probably won't like Mark very much because it's just very much a kind of a Joe Friday, just give me the facts. This is what happened. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason that in the beginning of Mark, there's no record of his birth and there's no genealogy. You know why? Because Mark's writing to Romans and I love you moms and happy Mother's Day, but Romans don't care who your mama is. They don't care. They don't care who your daddy is. They want to know one thing. They're a civilization that is building one of the greatest societies that has ever been known in human history at that time. And they just want to know one thing. Will you emerge victorious? Are you good for your word? And can you get the job done? And so Mark writes with his Roman audience in mind, and Jesus is presented as a man of action. The term immediately occurs more than 17 times in these 16 short chapters of Mark. Jesus comes, he heals the sick, he proclaims the, the, the kingdom, he trains up his disciples, he ultimately dies on a cross and rises again. He does exactly what he says he's going to do, and the story of Mark is the story of a Jesus who moves from miracle to speech to miracle to proclamation of the kingdom to another miracle to the training of disciples. He's always on the move, he's always going because he has a mission to accomplish, and Jesus gets it done. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the ultimate victor. Thirdly, Luke tells us that Jesus is the perfect man. This is, I think, one of the most beautiful accounts of Jesus' life. It is presented to Gentiles by the only Gentile writer in the Bible, a man named Luke. Luke is a doctor. He's a physician. And in this story, he highlights the role of otherwise disenfranchised people. He speaks about Jesus encountering with the poor. He speaks about Jesus and minority groups. He speaks about Jesus and women and the critical role that they played in serving kingdom interests alongside their Savior. It is Luke that records for us that there is a pagan Roman centurion that Jesus looks at and says, that man has more faith than I've ever seen among anybody in Israel. It is in Luke's gospel where we read about women whose testimonies in the ancient world were not even considered to be valid in a court of law. Women in this day and age were barely considered human. But in Luke's gospel, they are the first to discover and to proclaim that he is risen. They are the ones who stubbornly insist in the face of cowardly men that he is alive. And Jesus uses them. In great and powerful ways. Great and powerful ways. And all of this is because Jesus can be traced in Luke's genealogy, not back to David, not back to Abraham, but all the way back to Adam. Because Luke is proving a point to his readers that Jesus is 100% God, but he's also 100% human. And he is perfect humanity. Perfect humanity. He is the second Adam who came 
and who undid all of the things that the first Adam brought into our world in terms of the, the sin curse and that curse that creates walls between genders and ethnicities and nationalities and classes, rich and poor and slave and free, male and female, Jew and Gentile. Everyone finds everything each of us was intended to be when we look at the perfect human being, the man Christ Jesus. But there's one other thing we learn from the Gospels. He's not just the Messiah. He's not just the ultimate victor. He's not just the perfect man. John, in his gospel, tells us that Jesus is God in the flesh. See, if what John tells us about Jesus isn't true, then none of the other stuff that we've talked about matters a whole lot. You know? It just doesn't. Perfect humanity, ultimate victor, promised Messiah. In fact, not only does it not matter, it can't be true unless this is also true. Jesus is God. In the very first chapter of his gospel, he says the word was with God and the word was God. John writes those words primarily to a Greek audience. Now the Greeks believed that there was this all-controlling, penetrating force that surrounds us, it's in us, it's among us, and it determines everything. And it is called, sorry Star Wars fans, it's not the force, the Lagos. It is very similar though to the kind of thing that is, is presented in, in the Lucas films of Star Wars. This, this all-controlling thing, it permeates, it surrounds, it controls everything, and everything is left up to the will of Lagos, this very impersonal sense of fate and determinism. And so something bad happens, and the Greeks would go, it's the Lagos. Something good would happen, and the Greeks would go, it's the Lagos. And so John writes to this Greek audience whom he desperately wants to know Jesus, and he says, you're correct, there is a Lagos. There is an all-controlling, penetrating, sovereign force in this world. But here's where you're wrong. That force is not impersonal. That force is not deterministic. That force is a person. That force is that, that Lagos became flesh and lived among you. And you were able to behold the glory of the sovereign God because of what he did for you. Jesus is God. And ultimately, what that means in John's gospel is that the gospel is not about us getting from here to there. It's about the Logos becoming flesh. It's about the living word, God, very God, coming to where I am because I cannot help myself. And so John contains the clearest declarations of divinity. All of the I am statements are in John because the one who came, this, this promised one that God had told us our first parents about, it's God himself who comes to us. And so he says to our first parents in Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to send a deliverer. I'm going to send a Messiah. And by the time we get to this period in history, as it turns out, God just decided I'm going to come myself. And I'm going to wrap myself in human flesh. And I'm going to love. And I'm going to suffer. And I'm going to die. And I'm going to rise again. And I'm going to do it because I'm good to keep my promises. I'm good. I'm as good as my word. That, that really is the message of Jesus' whole life, is that God keeps his promises, and that promise is embodied in a person that entered human history and is about to change history in an act so powerful that it will begin to turn back all the effects of sin and death in our world. But the path toward that victory is a hard one to watch because it involves one of the most painful and excruciating forms of death. And that's what we'll get to next week, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But right now, here's where you need to know. Here's what you need to know about Jesus. 
He is your only hope. Some people wonder, where's my hope for a better life? Where's my hope for what happens to me after this life? Where's my hope for getting out of the pit that I'm in? And some people will look to religious ritual, maybe another baptism or some other kind of, of religious work. Some people will look to money, maybe if I just give enough to the church. Some people will look to uh, all manner of things. If I just live a, a good life, and, and here's what you need to know, your only hope is not found in you. It's, not, it's found outside of you. And your only hope is not found in religious ritual. Your hope is found in a person. Your hope is found in a God who did not merely stand on the precipice of heaven and preach a sermon and expect you to respond. Your hope is found in a God who wrapped himself in human flesh and came to get you. He comes for you. And even now, he's calling some of you. And the question is, what will you do with him? What will you do? And we'll talk about this next week. He gave his life as a substitute for your sin so that you wouldn't have to pay that penalty. And then he rose from the dead triumphantly over death, hell, and the grave. But before he did all of that, he did everything we talked about today. Why? Because he needs to model for you what kingdom living looks like. He needs to model for me what perfection looks like. And he offers you an avenue to that life and to becoming everything that God intended you to be. But you have to find him as your only hope in this person and run to him. Turn from your sins. Give him everything you've got. Give him your life. And watch him do with you powerful, powerful things that really will begin to reflect what he did with the early disciples. He loves you. He came to get you. Give him everything that you are. Let's pray together. Lord, you are good. We thank you for your son. We thank you that you do keep your word. We thank you that thousands of years of history and kings and other characters and circumstances ultimately in your sovereign will resulted in the coming of our Messiah, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that we find our ultimate hope in him. And I pray that those who are here today would find that hope as well. With you guys still and your eyes shut, let me just ask, have you come to a place in your life where you have really, truly, substantively given Jesus everything. If not, you just need to know your sins have separated you from your God. And God does not desire you to be separated from him. He loves you. And so he sent Christ into the world to live the life that we just talked about so that you can see in reading the gospels that there's a life out there that's better than the one you're living right now. There is a greater, more fulfilled, Jesus called it abundant that is better than the one you're living. And the way you find it is by giving your life over to him. By just saying to him, and let me just ask you to confess that right now. Just say something like this. Say, Lord, I, I know that I'm separated from you. I confess my sins. I believe in this story that I just heard from that fallen man up there. I believe you came to show me what real life is about. And, and Lord, I believe you died to take my sin. And I accept you. I embrace you as my Lord, my Savior. I will follow you. And my hope from this day forward, we all and only in your death and resurrection for me. Just ask him to do it. And the scriptures say, if you will call on the name of the Lord in that way, you'll be saved. That's my prayer for everyone this morning. Can't think of a better way to celebrate Mother's Day than for a son, for a daughter, for mom herself 
to rid herself, not, not just of the guilt she shouldn't carry in the first place, as so many moms do, but of her actual guilt that was nailed to the cross. Mom, you can do that today. And so, Lord, send your Holy Spirit to permeate this room and convict hearts and draw people to yourself. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.